Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture comes from Psalms chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. In an era of identity dysfunction, there are narcissists who view themselves so highly they believe the world revolves around them. In contrast, there is an epidemic among teenagers who think so lowly of themselves that they turn to suicide and drugs to alleviate the pain. Confusion about self is so acute that gender dysphoria is commonplace. Our culture is permeated with hollow identity slogans. We hear, you can be anything you want to be, right? You know, there have been tens of thousands of people who have aspired to be president of the United States. Only a few have actually made it. I'd like to be middle linebacker for the Patriots, but Bill Pelichek is not giving me a call to join camp. We hear, be yourself. It's hard to be ourselves because we don't know who we are. We hear, look into your heart. But our hearts are deceitful, riddled with defense mechanisms that keep us from being honest about ourselves. The prevailing advice concerning identity is that we are to look within. A 2016 Barna study found that 91% of U.S. adults And 76% of practicing Christians agreed completely or somewhat with the statement, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. The results of following this advice, they're visible in the current state of identity dysfunction. You know, it's no coincidence that our crisis of identity is increasing at the same time that our belief in God is waning. There's a direct correlation between the two. And our mistake, and apparently 76% of Christians have fallen into the same mistake, is that we begin in the wrong place. Looking inward rather than upward. John Calvin had it right when he wrote, It's certain 
that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon the face of God, then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. Calvin's words are a wake-up call to our generation. And Psalm 8 is the antidote to the mistaken counseling we're receiving. It shows that to find our true selves, we do it by looking at our Creator and then seeing ourselves as He created us to be. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today. Give us a vision of your glory and your majesty and bring us under that so that we might see ourselves as you created us to be, that we might hear your call and follow it, that we might know who we truly are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, a, a generation ago, a music group called Kansas dared to be honest about our identity apart from God. And they sang as they concluded, we are a drop of water in an endless sea. Though we refuse to see it, we are dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell drew a similar conclusion. He wrote, man's origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. He said that all that we see and do is headed for extinction. It's really meaningless. And so he adds, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built? This is the conclusion of humanity apart from God. Build our lives on unyielding despair because you are nothing. That's an honest assessment if God does not exist. So, who, who understands our identity? Is it Bertrand Russell? Kansas? Our parents? Our best friends are the social media bullies. Are we to look inside ourselves? At what age? Six? Sixteen? Sixty? We're ever-changing. What we feel about ourselves today is going to be different tomorrow. Who understands who we truly are? The artist who created us. Psalm 8 offers us insights into who God made us to be by first looking at God just as Calvin theorized. Psalm 8.1 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. If you'll notice, the first Lord is in all capital letters. Whenever you see the word Lord or God in all capital letters, it's translating the word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. So holy to the Jewish people that they would never pronounce it. 
and our Bibles follow suit by never writing it, but putting it in capitals. And that's critical for our understanding ourselves because we need to know who God is. We need to have the right God to understand our right selves. See, he is Yahweh, not Allah, not Baal. He is a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who have been living in an eternal love relationship among themselves, and therefore the very core of God himself is love. He is relational. And he is just, merciful, holy, and righteous. And we are called to reflect him. So we need to have the right God. The second Lord, it begins with an uppercase L and small letters following it, is a reference to master. That we are to submit to Yahweh who is our Lord. We will never find our true selves until we make Yahweh our Lord. Otherwise, we'll disregard our God-given identity and we'll replace it with one of our own making, which is what's happening today. But that will all change when we make our Lord our Lord and we see him for who he is and give him his rightful place as the one who is majestic over all the earth. Cambridge English Dictionary defines someone who is majestic as having the quality of causing you to feel great admiration and respect for them because of their size, power, and or beauty. God is majestic. He is awe-inspiring in his grandeur, and that should lead us to bask in his glory, to long to know him more fully, and to see ourselves through his eyes. His majesty is seen throughout the earth in his creation. Romans 1.20 describes this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we have no excuse for rejecting him. Sir Isaac Newton had an exact replica of our solar system made in miniature. At its center was a large golden ball representing the sun. Revolving around it were small spheres representing the planets attached to the ends of rods of varying lengths. They were all geared together by cogs and belts to make them move around the sun in harmony. One day, as Newton was studying the model, a friend who did not believe in God stopped by. Marveling at the device and watching as Newton made the heavenly bodies move around their orbits, the man exclaimed, My Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Newton replied, Nobody. Nobody, his friend said. That's right. I said, nobody. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together and wonder of wonders. By chance, they began revolving in their set orbits and with perfect timing. 
his friend got the message. And we should too. Romans 1 goes on to describe what happens when we don't give God his rightful place. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Our culture says, look inside yourself without looking to God. So what are we looking at? Darkened hearts and darkened minds. We look to these to determine our identity. No wonder we don't see the glory of who we are. We've exchanged it for something much lesser, for an identity that is twisted. You know, there's those who would mock what I just said about God. They challenge his existence. God's response is seen in verse 1 of Romans 1 and in verse 1, excuse me, in verse 1 of Psalms and in chapter 1 of Romans. Look at creation. It's clear. There is a creator. Verse 2 is also God's response. So we read, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You all get that? It's a puzzling verse. Since nothing coherent seems to come out of the mouths of infants and babies. And so commentators have struggled with its meaning and there's a variety of views. But the main point is clear. God uses the weak to counter his foes. You know, this verse may mean that we see the miraculous hand of God in infants because they were created in the womb by his hands. And whenever we hear their coos or their cries, we're reminded of the glory of God in this creation and the beauty of that infant, the babe. A second understanding is that the babes are a reference to God's chosen people. They were weak. They were slaves. But God exerted his glory and power by delivering them miraculously from their enemies. A third possibility is that when we look at infants and babies, we see those who are completely unbiased and uncorrupted. They're not prejudiced for or against a God. But if you were able to ask them, they would say there is a God, they would praise him. And Jesus seems to have used the verse in that way in Matthew 21. We read, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. 
Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? See, Jesus' enemies were prejudiced against him. Even though he, all of the evidence of his miracles and his teaching pointed to him as Messiah, they would not accept him because they were biased against him. They wanted him to silence the children who were calling him Messiah in Jesus' response. Cited Psalm 8-2. The children were a clean slate regarding Jesus, lacking prejudice for or against him. When they saw him, they sang his praises as Messiah. So David looks again to the heavens, and he was overwhelmed at the expanse of the universe, which led him to wonder why God would care for humanity for such seemingly insignificant creatures like us. Verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? To gain self-understanding, David began where we should all begin. He looked at God through the eyes of creation, the magnitude of it, before he looked at himself. There's a story about Theodore Roosevelt and a good friend. They'd often go out night, they'd look up into the stars, and they were challenging each other to see who could be the first one to locate the Andromeda galaxy. And then as they, they gazed at the tiny smudge of distant starlight, one of them would recite, that's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would grin and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. We are so small, infinitesimal, so seemingly insignificant in the vast expanse of the universe. So why should God ever give a second thought to us? We are less than ants in our sight, in his sight. Why should God care for us? But he does. That's astonishing. But there's something even more astonishing in the next verse. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. The word translated heavenly beings is the word Elohim, which is almost always translated God. <clears throat> it can mean angels, but we are crowned with a glory and honor from God because we are little less in his eyes than God himself. 
we are crowned with a glory and honor that is greater than the glory of the stars in the sky and the universe around us. That's a far cry from the description that other Near Eastern commodities of David's day, as they depicted humanity as those created to be slaves of God. It's a far cry from the secular evolutionist's view of humanity as us being a little higher than the animals. It's a far cry from the identity that the molecular biologist Francis Crick offers when he wrote, you, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. But we're a little lower than God. How are we a little lower than God? We're not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. We're not divine. However, we are as close to God as we possibly could be because we're made in his image and given authority to steward his creation. Each of us is the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. David clearly had Genesis 1, 26 through 28 in mind when he wrote this psalm. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. We're made with godlike attributes that allow us to reflect his image. Chief among these are intellect, emotion, and will. We're rational creatures, able to see God, others, ourselves, and the world with a divine perspective. We are emotional beings who, like God, have love at the very center of our hearts and our ethical choices. We have a will that was meant to reflect God's will and follow his purposes. So you think of your identity. Think of being a mirror imaging God's character. Thinking like he thinks, loving like he loves, following his will on earth as it is in heaven. This describes humanity as we were created in Genesis 1 and 2. However, it takes a bad turn in Genesis chapter 3. When humanity caved to the temptation to replace God with himself, we usurped his role to determine good and evil, how we view ourselves and how we're to live. As we saw in Romans 1 earlier, our intellects, emotions, and wills were darkened. We no longer have a true sense of self or express our true selves as the image of God. When humanity chose to walk away from God and we defined our own existence, our own morality, and our own identity and became our own gods, the image of God became distorted like a funhouse mirror distorts our image. We might see in the mirror 
ourselves. There's a head, a body, legs, arms, but they're all distorted in different shapes, different lengths. That's what we've done to the image of God. There is intellect, emotion, and will, but it's all distorted. The true you is not the funhouse mirror that distorts God's image. It's the mirror we were created to be. If we want to see what we're meant to look like, look at Jesus. If we want to know how we can straighten out our funhouse mirror to get it back to what we truly are, go to Jesus. You know, whereas David's pre-fallen description of humanity as those who are little lower than angels, crowned with glory and honor, ruling over the world, it's hardly recognizable in us today. But it is perfectly recognizable in Jesus. Though he was not a little lower than God, because he is God, he took on the role of being a little lower than angels when he became man. And he is crowned with glory and honor. And he does rule over all creation. The author of Hebrews points to Jesus when he cites Psalm 8. And he also described Jesus as the perfect image of God in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is both the model for us as the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of the divine nature, and he is the way back to our becoming our true selves because he made purification for our sins. You know, verse 4 asks the question, What's man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And the psalmist was in awe that God thought about us and cared for humanity. But we who live on the other side of the cross, we should be in so much greater awe of how much God cares for us. He hasn't just sat on his throne dispensing what's necessary to meet our needs and rescuing us from the dire circumstances or ministering from a distance to our broken spirits. I mean, he, he cares for us in those ways, but he's done something much, much greater. God the Son stepped into our world. He stepped into our lives. He put aside his regal robes of glory and he took on flesh. And think about that. God became human. That is the greatest affirmation of the glory that we have as humans. Most of us don't think highly of ants. They're so little, so insignificant, but what if a human being became an ant to save the ants? All of a sudden, we'd see an entirely different value that ants have. That hasn't happened. 
However, we are small and insignificant, but God, the God of the universe, became human. Do you see what that says about your identity? How valuable you are? Now that would be enough to declare how glorious we are, but, but Jesus went a step further. He actually died for us, for our sins. Bishop Fulton Sheen speaks of that sacrifice he made. From the north, south, east, and west, the foul miasma of the world's sins rushed upon Christ like a flood. And Samson-like, he reached up and pulled the whole guilt of the world upon himself as if he were guilty. He paid for the sins of the world. See, if we want to know the value of something, we find out how much someone is willing to pay for it. I have a collection, sports cards, and I can look at one card and say, what's this value? And I can go to different books that say it's valued at this, it's valued at this. But I only find out its true value when I put it on eBay. What is someone willing to pay for it? How valuable are you? What is somebody willing to pay for you? But that's not the real question. What is the one who knows who you are? God himself willing to pay for you. How valuable are you to him? He paid with the life of his son. Don't look inside. Look upward. Look to the cross. We want to know what we should look like. The image of God is reflected in Jesus. And it should be reflected in the same way. He's a model, but he's also the way to the transformation. We can be changed. We can become more like Jesus because he provided the purification for our sins. He offers forgiveness he offers the possibility of becoming more and more like him because he sent the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And one day, we will perfectly reflect the image of God because of what Christ has done for us. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. Do you get that? One day when he appears, we will be like him. Trevin Wax wrote in his book, Rethink Yourselves. It's only when we look up to learn who we were created to be that we discover our true purpose and become our truest selves. Current generations are sending the wrong message. 
They're heading us down the wrong path, pointing us to live out an identity based on our fallen selves, our darkened minds, and our darkened hearts. But God has another way for us. We can find ourselves by looking upward to him and looking upward to the cross. And when we begin on that journey, and when we begin to become transformed, the heavens will declare the majesty of God, and we will declare the glory of God. And Psalm 8 9 will become true as our world one day says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth, which is eternal, which is unchanging from generation to generation, that we are given a foundation for not only our lives, but our understanding of ourselves that is a solid rock that cannot be blown away by the winds of the world or our culture. Lord, we pray for those who are being blown to and fro because they have no stability. Oh, Lord, may we have such care for our world, for those tossed to and fro, that we not only love, but we reach out with the message of Christ that they too might have a firm foundation to build themselves upon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.